Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. I'm sure you guys enjoyed a break last week uh, from this preaching, and and I hear Brother Eric delivered a good message. Um, I forgot to put my shoes on this morning when I left the house, so I'm wearing my sand, my sandals I wear around the house. So forgive me for that, but they are comfortable. So I am comfortable up here. Now I understand. Now, I may be wrong. I don't pay attention to this stuff. And sometimes people mean well and they send me stuff. They think I need to see what some vile, wicked, probably child porn addict is saying out there on the internet somewhere. Man, if I kept record of stuff folks said about me over the years, I'd have a library bigger than the one at the Biltmore House. So I don't pay a lot of attention to that. But I've heard, I've heard it through the grapevine that there's someone out there offering money to people who can produce a picture of me with a dangerous weapon in my hand. So I want to give you an opportunity this morning to make a little money. I doubt these folks will pay up. They probably spend all their money looking at kitty porn. But uh, if you want to make a little money, here I am. Take a picture. I've got a dangerous weapon in my hand. It's a double-edged, 66-caliber, broad-back, two-edged sword. It's a giant bear trap. It'll trap you in it. It'll trap you in it if you're not careful. But the Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. This weapon here can pull down strongholds more than any gun or any nuclear bomb. This weapon's overthrown kingdoms. It's overthrown them. And it'll overthrow all kingdoms one day. When I think about this weapon, I think about exactly what we read in Psalm 29 this morning. Go back and read Psalm 29 one morning. I want you to envision exactly the imagery we have there. The imagery we have there concerning the voice of the Lord. This Bible is the voice of the Lord. It's a thunderstorm. It's a mighty storm. You see it approaching, and then suddenly it's upon you and it breaketh the cedars. And then it passes by. And as it passes by, there's stillness and there's peace. The voice of the Lord is a furious storm that comes and falls and passes on. You ever notice how it is after a storm, a summer thunderstorm passes on, there's a calmness and a peace. There's a fresh uh, essence in the air. Well, that's the Bible encapsulated. If we wanted to encapsulate this book from Genesis to Revelation, it's the very thunderstorm of God, His voice that we see in Psalm 29. And by God's grace, we're at the end here in our study. We're at that peace, that calm, after the storm has passed by. And one of these days we'll be there. Praise the Lord. I thought this was interesting. If I can find it, I thought I had this in here. Um, A lot of folks are scared of AI or artificial intelligence. And there's reasons to be. This is the end of times. These things were predicted. Folks used to laugh and scoff about the concept of a one-world government or the concept of people not being able to buy and sell unless they have a mark or the biblical revelation that when Christ comes, every eye will see Him or that every eye would be able to see and rejoice when God's street preachers are slain in the streets and then get up on their feet and go back to heaven and everyone's afraid. People used to scoff and wonder about those things. 
But do we have to scoff and wonder about that today? I mean, one little tiny thing goes on in one little county in Montana and people all over the world know about it. And it makes them angry. Is there any surprise that when two street preachers get slaughtered in Jerusalem one day, is it any surprise that the world will celebrate and give gifts to one another over that? I mean, these people around this world that are obsessed with a couple of old nobodies that were walking through Montana with a cross. Obsessed. They spend day and night, hours and hours, trying to parse every little thing, hating the fact that somebody walked through there with a cross. These things aren't hard to envision anymore. They are upon us. But uh, I discovered something from artificial intelligence yesterday that I actually was able to use for good. Something I've been wanting to do for a long time. I was able to find a way to take a sermon, an hour-long sermon that I preached, and within five minutes it was transcribed. And as I read through it, it was about 95% correct. That's amazing. I've been wanting to do that for a long time. So I actually transcribed the very first sermon that we preached in this exegetical study on Revelation. And I just thought the first paragraph was interesting in view of where we are today. This was on January 13th, 2013. The very first message in this exegetical study that we've gone through from time to time in between our travels over the years. Today's message is number 178, believe it or not. But this is what I first said that morning, that Sunday morning, over 10 years ago. I just found it funny. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to see it written down. It's an honor to be with you this morning. Amen. We are going to start a very long journey that could potentially take years. I guess I was right. <laughs> we want to exegetically study the book of Revelation. It's a book that's often avoided from the pulpit. Amen. In fact, in my whole tenure as a Christian, and I meant this then, I mean it now, I only remember the book of Revelation being exegetically preached through in a sense one time. Throughout all the years of going to church and all of the sermons I heard from all the preachers and the teachers, I only remember one time someone approaching this book exegetically. And it was only a couple of chapters. This was over at Tri-City Baptist Church years ago when Pastor Stan Fry took us through the letters to the seven churches. Now that's amazing because those are red letters written directly to the New Testament church and yet it's never preached from. A message right from Christ. Never preached from. That's the only time I ever remember this book being given specific attention in the church. And considering what John says and what Jesus says to the churches in this book, I find it amazing that it's often ignored. This book has relevance for Christians throughout all of history. But particularly, I believe, for those of us living in these last days. And I believe we're living in the last days. So we should study this book. It's going to be a long journey. It has been. But we're almost to the end. We're almost to the end. And I praise God. Ten years closer to the coming of our Lord than we were when this journey began. And we're at the end. Good friend of mine, a faithful brother, my sending church pastor, a friend of many years went home to be with the Lord back in October. 
I got the news while we were shopping in a Walmart in Rexburg, Idaho. This was just a few days before the hate crime that was done upon us in Madison County. A hate crime done upon us by a man that's probably involved in the tra- sex trafficking along with the... Uh, if I had to bet, there's an operation out there between those local cops and that fly fisherman that involves sex trafficking. I've, been, I've spent enough time in Nepal and India... And I know what they do down on the borders with those little old motels that you come in and those women are held captive. I know what they do around this world. And I know the evil that goes on. But a hate crime was done upon us because when the cross comes walking down the road where there's evil like that, evil goes bananas. And that's what happened. But a few days before that, I got word that a good friend of mine went home to be with the Lord. I could have kicked myself because that Saturday evening as I was walking west out of West Yellowstone, Montana... The Lord put on my heart to call him. And it was a Saturday evening. He was two hours ahead and I didn't want to bother him. And I thought, you know what? I'll just call him Monday morning. He died on Sunday. And uh, just a good brother, a friend. And we got to spend some time with his widowed wife on our way down to the coast last Friday. And we took her out to lunch. And it was so good to see her. that uh, Brother Terry's a second husband she's buried. And uh, we just spent some time together and we agreed that it was a good thing that Brother Terry didn't have to live to see that wickedness done upon us in Madison County, Montana. He didn't have to live to see that. We, we agreed it was a good thing. But uh, I got to hear about exactly what happened when he passed away. He had just come home from church on Sunday morning and his daughter was there with the grandkids. And they went inside. And uh, he'd gone outside to look for the handicap sticker in his car and couldn't find it. was a little flustered about it. And they'd gone inside, and he'd sat down in his characteristic lounge chair. I know exactly where it was. I can vision it in my mind right now. And he asked his daughter if she'd give him a little something to drink. She brought back, gave him something to drink, and he, he, bit on a, he had a cookie or something and bit on it. And his daughter was just standing there, and she said that suddenly this strange look came over her eyes, and he said the strangest thing. He said, Abigail... What is that light behind you? What is that light? And she said, Dad, I don't see a light. And then he just went to bite down on that cookie. He was dead. Went home to be with the Lord. See, we're at the point in this book of Revelation now where we see that light. We're at the end. We're at the end. The light. Not the darkness. Go back and read some of the last words. I saw a post this morning from a friend of mine on Facebook that kind of catalogs some of the last words of famous agnostics or atheists throughout history, and then it compared it with the last words of godly men. And there was a common theme amongst the last known words of these agnostics, and it was, oh, the darkness. Oh, the darkness. The darkness. What have I done? But yet those who knew the Lord spoke of light, spoke of peace. Some said, let us pass over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Some said, strike the tent. Let's move. Others said, I feel hell all around me. Nothing but darkness. There's light at the end for the saints of the Lord God and we're seeing that right here. Where we are. So there's the, there's the long introduction. I apologize for that. We've got a short scripture this morning. Turn to Revelation 22. Now, if I were a betting man, I'd believe that. I'd bet on that stuff I talked about earlier. I don't have any proof of that, but I know wickedness. 
I know wickedness. I've seen it. We've seen it all over the world. And that same wickedness that's in heathen countries is in this country today. If, if God pulled back the curtain, we think about abortion. We think about the slaughter of the unborn. We think about the homosexual abomination out there. But if God were to pull back the curtains on our society, what's really there is far worse. That stuff is patty cakes compared to what's really there. I bet you'd be shocked if you knew the trafficking in human souls. Slavery that takes place in, play, in, in positions of politics and power. Uh, you'd be shocked if you learned about the law enforcement agencies that traffic in human souls. Guarantee it. I guarantee it. We need to open our eyes. There's blood on the hands of this nation. And God's judgment upon her is actually a good thing. Not a bad, just like a thunderstorm that cleanses the land. So, yeah, we, we'll just give a few things out there to rile up the doxers a little bit. Get them a little, give them a little sleepless night as they try to transcribe my words this morning. Get the AI program like I got, and it'll transcribe the whole thing for you real quick. You won't have to spend uh, hours and hours and hours doing it. But anyway, Revelation 22, verse 20. Last time we looked at the first half of the verse. This time we're going to look at the last half. Very short. Here in Revelation chapter 22, we've been looking at some very last that are in the Bible. Some very last. If something's in the Bible, the first time it's there, we ought to look at it. We ought to consider it. The last time it's there, we ought to consider it. And here in Revelation 22, just like in Genesis 1, we've got the last of many things that were first. And so in verses 6 through 15, we looked at the very last exhortation of the Bible. In verses 16 and 17, we looked at the Bible's very last invitation. In verses 18 and 19, we pause to consider some very serious words. The Bible's very last warning. Don't add to God's Word. Don't take away from God's Word. Serious. Very serious. In verse 20, the first half, He which testified these things saith, Surely I come quickly. We looked at the Bible's last promise. And oh, what a promise that is. The very first promise of the Bible was that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. The very last promise of the Bible, He which testified to these things, that's Jesus the Messiah, the seed of the woman, saith, Surely I come quickly. That last promise proves to us that God hadn't forgotten His first promise. He's coming quickly. Today I want to look at the last prayer of the Bible. The, first, the last promise is the first half of verse 20. The last prayer of the Bible uttered by John the Apostle is the last half of verse 20. Jesus' promise, He which testified these things saith, Surely I come quickly. John's prayer, the last prayer of the Bible. Amen, even so come Lord Jesus. A short prayer, but boy is that powerful. Elsewhere in the Scriptures, and we'll look at this later, that short prayer can be summed up in one word. There's a one word way of saying that short prayer. A lot of times we get to talking to God and we get to blabbing on and blah, 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 blah. When the most powerful and comforting prayer we could offer in that moment of trial is something as succinct and short as this. Even so, come Lord Jesus. What I find interesting about the Bible's very last prayer is that it doesn't end with an amen. It begins with an amen. 
Now we're going to talk more about that word because in verse 21, the last message in this series is only going to look at one word. It's the last amen of the Bible. So we're going to get to that down the road just a little. I'm not going to get into it today. But amen is an English transliteration of a Greek word. The, new, the book of Revelation was originally penned in Koine Greek, the common language of the people in that day. And that Greek word is a transliteration of a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is amen. In fact, I've talked to Israelis or Jewish folks about different things. People I've met in our path as we traveled around the world, Israeli backpackers and even in our travels and labors in Israel, you'll be talking about things, whether it's the news or politics or something going on, and they'll just say amen, amen, amen. They're, they're not churchgoers or Christians, or some of them don't even fear God, but they use that word because it's a Hebrew word. And in our Bible, it's a transliteration. There's, a tran- there's transliterations and translation. A translation is when we take a word in a language, and we translate it into our language. For example, the name Yeshua in Hebrew, or another form of it, Yehoshua, Joshua, transliterated into English would be Yeshua. But we haven't transliterated that word, we've translated it. Yeshua, or Jesus in Greek, we've translated to Jesus. Jesus is just a translation, an English translation of the Greek word Jesus, of the Hebrew word Yeshua. When I witness to Jewish people about the Messiah, I say Yeshua. So there's no misunderstanding in their minds. I'm not talking about Catholic Jesus hanging on a cross. I'm talking about Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel, who was cursed and hung upon a tree and then rose from the grave. So there are translations and transliterations, but the, the, the King James translators in English left Amen as a transliteration. They didn't translate it. They could have translated it, and there are places where it is, but at the beginning or an end of a prayer, they left it because of its power. It simply means, so be it. That transliteration is so powerful that it's actually become an English word that we've borrowed from Hebrew. And we know basically what it means when we hear it, even if we can't articulate it. What you may not have understood is that amen can be used at the beginning of a discourse or at the end. And most of the time we attach an amen to the end of our prayer. It's just a religious thing, a superstitious thing. We don't even know what it means. If we did, we'd say it with a little more force. Amen. It's hard to even say that word if you know what it means and say it like that. Amen. I used to love hearing those old men in church growing up as a kid. The pastor would get to preaching and these old men, I'd hear them out there, Amen. Or sometimes as we hear in the South, Amen. And they said it as if they meant it because that word means something. At the beginning of a discourse like you have here, what amen would mean is truly, surely, verily, in truth, in fact. In other words, listen up, because what follows is assuredly true. 
Now you guys know Jesus' famous words in John 3. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did you know that verily, verily is amen, amen? Verily, verily in Greek, amen, amen, except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Amen, amen. You must be born again. The essence there is truly, verily, this is absolute truth. No two ways about it. Jesus, by saying amen, amen, not once, but twice to Nicodemus, was speaking blunt. There's no room for debate. There's no argument. Those were powerful words that were spoken. And Nicodemus should have known what he was talking about as a teacher of Israel. When amen is at the end of a discourse, like the end of a prayer, it means so be it, or may it be so, or may it be. Here I find it interesting that this amen is... Not only the beginning of a discourse, but it's also the end. It stands at a crossroads. It's the end of one discourse and the beginning of another. It's the end of Christ's last words. It's the end of the Bible's last promise. He which testified these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. So be it. But it's also the beginning of John's prayer. The Bible's last prayer. Amen to God's promises. Amen to our prayers. Amen to God's promises. Amen to our prayers that the Lord would fulfill His promises. This last prayer in the Bible begins with an amen because this last prayer is a petition not for John, not for some personal desire but for Jesus to do exactly what He just promised He would do. It's a prayer that God would keep His Word, that Christ the Son of God would fulfill it. And therefore, amen, the end of a promise, amen, the beginning of the Bible's last prayers. When I think about that, I think of of something James says in chapter 5. Now you've got to remember when you read the book of James that James is writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He's writing to the Jewish diaspora. That's his primary um, audience. And of course, all everything in here, just like every Scripture, has application for us because it's spiritual. But James, I believe, was written very early on. I believe, or I tend to believe, that the author James here isn't the brother of our Lord, but it's James the Apostle, the son of Zebedee. I wouldn't die on that hill, but that's my conviction. But this was early and it was written to the 12 tribes. And you've got to remember the Bible always has a prophetic aspect. It's not just history. It's not just exhortation. It's not just epistle. Everything is prophetic. And so the book of James prophetically pictures Israel in the times of tribulation. And that's why when you get to James chapter 5, what you seem to read here is that the rich are damned and the poor have hope. Well, how can that be? Well, 
in the tribulation, if you're rich, you're damned to hell because you ain't going to be rich unless you've got the mark of the beast. And if you've got that mark, you're going to hell. If you're poor, you haven't taken the mark. And it may seem it's over. So there's a prophetic aspect here that takes on power when you consider the future place of Israel. But to us, we can look at these things. And I, I'm think, I think of something that James says here in chapter 5 of verse 7. And I was blessed last week. We stopped into a little old Baptist church down in eastern North Carolina. And it wasn't very many people. But it was just a blessing to hear a pastor. It turns out that he started his seminary at Southeastern the, um, uh, the semester after Jamie and I left Southeastern to go serve on the mission field in, in uh, uh, Nepal. And, and it was interesting. And it was blessing to hear a man just exegete the scriptures from James chapter 5 and talk about the providence of God and the sovereignty of God and to speak about patience and tribulation. Something I needed to hear last week. So I was blessed by that. But we looked at verse 7. Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. And so what James exhorts here to his primary audience, Jews in tribulation at the time he wrote it and future speaking, but also to us looking for the coming of the Lord. Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. That's the essence of this last prayer of the Bible. Be patient. The Lord is coming. Behold, the husbandman, or the one that tends the ground, the farmer, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. So what we have here is a picture of a farmer before the early rain and certainly before the latter rain that has patience. The seed is in the ground. And he patiently waits. And he don't see anything. Before the early rain, people, there's no sprout coming out of the ground. There's nothing there. But the seed is in the ground. And so when there's nothing there to give you any indication that something is growing, the farmer has patience. And then the early rain comes and it sprouts. And then the latter rain and the fruit is born. Be ye also, that means like the farmer when he sees nothing but a plowed field. I get frustrated when we plow our garden and we put seeds in there in the spring and I don't see anything coming up. I've made the stupid mistake many times of going out there and digging around with my fingers just to see if the seed is still there. Now, if you're a real farmer, like my brother back here, you don't waste time doing stuff like that. I do because I get OCD and I don't know what I'm doing half the time. I don't have a green thumb. It's, all the, it's often red with clay or black from the dirt out there. But I get to messing around and then I find that little seed and I see a little tiny sprout coming out. But because I've messed with it, it never grows. We are to be like the farmer who is patient unto the coming of the Lord. Patient in tribulation. And I'm preaching myself here because I'm not this way. When you don't even see any fruit. Be ye also patient establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Establish your hearts. What does that mean to establish your hearts? I think it means exactly what we see from John here. John makes a petition to the Lord to fulfill what he promised. His heart was established. Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. Establish our hearts. Amen. 
Let's rest on God's promises, whether it's in our own personal trials and tribulations or whether it's in the vexation we experience today like Sodom, like Lot did in Sodom and Gomorrah over our country and over the state of things. Just like the farmer, when the seed's put in the ground, it will grow. These things will be fulfilled. I was blessed by that last week. As we establish our hearts, verse 9 is important. Grudge not one against another, brethren. Let's don't waste time grudging each other. Divided over stupidity. Lest ye be condemned, behold the judge standeth before the door. The judge stands at the door. And what does John say? Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So we have the last prayer of the Bible begins with an amen. And then it's followed by a petition. Establish your heart, succinct, short petition for Jesus to fulfill. Do, O Lord, as Thou hast said. Simple. It's a simple prayer. Even so, come Lord Jesus. There was an English Baptist preacher in the 1700s. He believe, I believe he died in 1771. His name was John Gill. John Gill actually preached in the same church that Spurgeon would preach over 100 years later. What a testimony. We don't even think about our churches being around 100 years from now. But he wrote a classic exposition of the Bible. And it's a verse-by-verse commentary on the Scriptures. And it's an amazing work. It's a very detailed work. I like looking at John Gill when I study the Bible. But this is what he said... This is from the um, 18th century about this phrase, even so come Lord Jesus. This was his commentary on it. Quickly, speedily, as thou hast said, and in all thy glory, set up thy kingdom. Let that come. Introduce thy people into it and destroy thine enemies. This he, or John, as one that loved the appearance of Christ, longed for it, hastened to it, and was impatient at the delay of it. Those are Gill's 18th century words on that very simple phrase. Can this be said of us? Do we long for our Lord's coming as John does here in the Bible's last prayer? You've heard it said patience is a virtue. Now, I wouldn't, I'm not going to quote Scripture and verse on this, so don't crucify me over it. But I almost believe that there's one time when impatience is a virtue. Patience is a virtue. We're to have patience. Be patient, my brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. But is it possible that when it comes to Christ's return, impatience is a virtue? A longing, a desire, impatience. Lord, come. When we have impatience over our Lord's coming, we won't be wrapped up in the world. We won't be tied up in the world. So maybe a little impatience when it comes to our Lord's return for His church will protect us from this wicked spirit of the age. Maybe it's a little protection. Maybe it's a little extra weapon there. Spiritual weapon. Even so. Even so. That's an interesting little 
phrase. It's a single word in the original language here of the New Testament. It's not a noun. It's not a verb. It's not an adjective. It's not an adverb. It's what's called a particle or an exclamation in Greek. It simply means no question, no doubt. Even so. In fact, if you look in the first half of this verse, we have the exact same Greek particle. He which testify these things saith, Surely, same word, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so. Even so and surely are the exact same word in the original language. They're affirmations. Exclamations. Yea, surely. In Matthew chapter 15 verse 27, that particle is translated truth. Truth. Even so means that what we see here is a prayer of faith. That single affirmation alone, even so, means this is a prayer of faith. I think about what James also said about faith in prayer. James 1.6, we're told, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and abradeth not. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven of the wind and tossed. When we pray, we should pray in faith. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I know this. I've been very double-minded in my walk with the Lord. Especially in trials and tribulations. It's unstable. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. A prayer of faith. If we're going to ask God for wisdom and discernment, let's ask in faith. James 5 says the prayer of faith will save the sick. I believe it. It says it. The prayer of faith will save the sick. How many of us are sickly and weak or see that because we can't pray in faith that God would sin? I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about all that garbage on television. But the prayer of faith will save the sick. That's the prayer John offers up right here. Even so, is a prayer of faith. It's a, a prayer of faith will yield God's wisdom, and a prayer of faith is powerful enough. It can move mountains or it can heal the sick. I wonder sometimes if we even have a clue about what faith the size of a mustard seed is. Because Jesus said if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, be thou plucked up and thrown to the sea, and it would obey you. But we never see that. And our Lord says when the Son of Man comes, will He even find faith on the earth? Do we even know what it is to have faith as a mustard seed? I don't know. I wouldn't claim to have had it ever. But if we believe not, He abideth faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Our Lord has faith. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. King James. Not faith in the Son of God, but faith of. I praise God for His faith. And I praise God when His faith is manifested in the faith of His saints, like we see here with John in that little word, even so. When John says, even so, come Lord Jesus, and you think about what the coming of Jesus involves throughout Revelation, there's an element of that prayer that John Gill brings out in his commentary. Destroy, O Lord, thy enemies. When we desire for Christ to come, an element of that ought to be that Christ would come and destroy His enemies. We're afraid to desire that. We're afraid to pray that, even though it's modeled for us by David. 
Even though it's summed up for us by John here, when you consider what Christ comes to do, when the Lamb unleashes judgment, don't forget, right there in Revelation 5, it's the Lamb that opens the seal and unleashes Antichrist. It's the Lamb that unleashes the four horses of the apocalypse. It's the Lamb that unleashes the seal and the trumpet and the vile judgments. Even so, come Lord Jesus has an element. Even so, come Lord and take vengeance on our adversaries. How can I say this? Well, if we look at every other use of this same particle in Revelation, it's associated with judgment. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail. W-A-I-L. Not cry. Not whimper. Wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. Talk about an Amen. Revelation 14. In Revelation 14, if you remember, we have that parenthesis where Jesus is seen with the tribulation saints, those Jewish witnesses... that finished the work of the Great Commission when the church has been taken out. Revelation 14.9, I'm going to read, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. That wine's not watered down. 90 proof, 100 proof. No, not 100 proof. 200 proof. I don't know how all them numbers work with liquor. 200 proof. How did you know that, Jason? No. <laughs> and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here, the judgment of the wicked is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I just lost my train of thought. Um, that word is in there. That word is in there. Oh, here, it's in verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea! It's that same word, even so. Saith the Spirit that they may rest from their labors and the work, their works do follow them. Our rest when Christ comes is linked to our desire, the patience and faith of the saints to see God judge the wicked. And that's why the Bible says to not avenge ourselves, but give place unto wrath because God's vengeance, it's His and it's far more effective and final than ours. So we've got that same... Word. Revelation 16, you see it again. 
That same word translated even so in chapter 22, verse 20. And I heard the angel, verse 5, of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because Thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and Thou hast given them blood to drink. Amen. For they are worthy. They're worthy of that blood because they've shed it. And I heard another out of heaven, out of the altar say, Even so... Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. That word even so, translated even so, is connected to God's judgment throughout Revelation. And therefore, when John uses it, there's an element of desiring the Lord's return that is a desire. It's okay to desire that God would judge our enemies. It's okay. David desired that God would take his enemies and break their teeth in their mouth. Isaiah desired that God would take his enemies and turn them upside down like a dish and wipe it clean. Or like a a slug that melteth when salt comes on it. Psalm 58, 10 and 11. We're so afraid to pray like this. And I, I don't understand why. You want to see evil overthrown in this country? Then quit trying to do it yourself. Quit trying to exercise your mind in matters too high for you and ask God to do it. Psalm 58, 10 and 11. I find comfort in these verses when I think about those wicked devils in Madison County, Montana. Some of those wicked devils that wear a badge. Jack-booted Nazi thugs. Jack-booted brown shirts who get a little authority. Domestic terrorists as far as I'm concerned. And if I had my way, they'd never wear a badge again. But I'm glad I don't have my way. I want God to have His way. And if they won't repent, if that wicked devil that committed a hate crime on us while we were minding our own business trying to walk down the road won't repent, may God's judgment be done upon him. If those wicked cops won't repent, may God's judgment be done upon him. If that wicked, vile county attorney, and he's one of the worst of all, that sniveler that looked so scared when he looked back at the camera and saw them Christians there in the court hearing, if he won't repent, may God's judgment be done upon him. And I'm standing in this pulpit under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll make this plain, there's no human authority on this planet that has any power to tell a Christian what he can't say in the church of Jesus Christ. You see, in the church of Jesus Christ, Caesar has no authority. Your honor has no authority in the church of Jesus Christ. Mr. President, Mr. Governor has no authority in here. We don't... We're not like the Jews of Jesus' day who said, we have no king but Caesar. They've been eating those words for 2,000 years. But Caesar has no authority here. The head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ says it, we ought not be afraid to say it. And we ought not to change what we say because Caesar thinks one way. We've got to be faithful and say what Christ says. We've got to be faithful and teach His Word. And that's what David does here. I take comfort in these words from David. I want men to repent, but if they won't, if they won't repent and find the mercy of God that I found when Jesus Christ saved a poor wretched sinner like me, if they won't have it, then may this be done upon it. Psalm 58.10 The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So that a man shall say, Verily, there is a reward for the righteous. 
Verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. Amen. We can pray that. We can desire that. I look forward to the day when the blood runs to the horse's bridles because our Lord Jesus Christ comes from heaven. He doesn't come, Jesus Christ, meek and mild. He comes with a sword on a white horse. His name is the Word of God. True and righteous are His judgments. And the Bible says the blood will run to the horse's bridles. And I look forward to washing my hands in that. Because I'm vexed like Lot was in the gate of Sodom. I'm vexed with the evil and the wickedness in this country. This country of ours is wicked as hell. And it deserves hellfire. And I pray hellfire will fall upon it if we won't repent. You want revival in this country? Revival starts when men repent. And you want to know where it ends? It don't end with a bunch of people kneeling down and singing praises. Revival ends when, un- when believers catch a fire for the Great Commission and go out and preach the gospel. That's where it begins. That's where it ends. And you want to pr- see that, look in the scriptures or go study history. I want revival in this country. Revival can't come to unbelievers. It comes to believers. I want revival in the churches. And I want spiritual awakening in the streets. That was our message all along as we walked 5,543 miles encouraging men to humble themselves and turn back to God because we need revival in our churches. We need spiritual awakening in our streets. And I said that over and over and over and over and over again to people. I didn't even get a chance to say that on US 287 before that vile devil came out and attacked us. That was a hate crime done upon Christians. And I rejoice. I rejoice. That wasn't me that was hated out there. Those folks didn't even know me. Didn't even talk to me. Didn't know who I was. But I had a cross. And they hated it. Praise God. They hated Christ. But Christ is going to take vengeance on all of that one day. Revelation chapter 6, I preached a message in this study back on January 29th, 2014. I titled it, A Fourth and a Whole. We finished up the fourth seal judgment and we got into the fifth seal. Now the fifth seal judgment's interesting because it's a picture simply of the martyrs of all ages before the throne of God. It's a judgment. It's not a plague that falls on the earth per se, but it's the martyrs of all ages before the throne crying out to God for vengeance. That's a terrible judgment. When Christ's martyrs cry out for vengeance, that's a judgment upon the world. It's a guarantee of judgment. And we talked about that in verses 9 through 11. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Man, there are folks that came before us that had a lot worse done upon them than somebody screaming, hollering, threatening to kill them. They were slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. There was an old Baptist by the name of Michael Sadler that was brought before court. You think it's bad in nowadays court system here in America? There's an Anabaptist writing called The Trial of Michael Sattler from the Middle Ages. I, I encourage you to look it up and read it sometime. Oh, Michael Sattler was pulled into court. He wasn't even able to open up his mouth to offer a defense. Some old wicked prosecutors, those old wicked Catholic prosecutors, started accusing him of all this stuff simply because they were baptizing according to Christ's command, the baptism of believers. And when old Michael Sattler went to open his mouth, they cut his tongue out right there in the courtroom. Didn't even allow him to speak. So we don't have it bad compared to that. 
We may feel like we don't have a voice in our society or we don't have a voice in court. We hadn't had a voice in this matter out there in Montana in a courtroom yet. We didn't have it that day on the side of the highway. We didn't have it in that old wicked police station out there. We didn't have a voice. But it still ain't as bad as what Michael Sattler... I tried to open my mouth. They didn't cut my tongue out, praise God. They cut his tongue out. So there are those that have suffered. That, that really bothered me in seminary when I read that in our church history class. There's an image there that... There's an old movie that was made about that too. Um, but Slain for the Word of God and for the testimony in which they held those martyrs, Michael Sattler and others up there before the altar. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost Thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? How long? It's alright to ask God how long. They're asking Him that up in heaven right here. And white robes were given unto every one of them. We know that's the righteousness of the saints, we find out later in the book. And it was said unto them that they should rest for yet a little season. Be patient. Oh, I'm going to take vengeance. But rest for a little season until your fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. When the righteous are persecuted and God seems to do nothing. Now, I'm saying this whether I absolutely believe it and find rest in it. Is, is another thing. I, I struggle. I try. But when God waits and seems to do nothing, the wicked are simply storing up damnation. That was what He said to Habakkuk. This precious lady from our sending church at Living Word sent me a little card a couple weeks ago and there was a little excerpt from a devotion in there in a church bulletin. And she had just underlined where it had said that God had told to Habakkuk that when the righteous suffer and he seems to do nothing, the wicked are simply storing up damnation for an even worse judgment. And I just thought that was precious. And I, I found comfort in that. I found comfort. But the martyrs are crying for vengeance. If they can cry for vengeance to God before the throne in heaven, can we not do it now? Oh, I want to see men repent. There'd be nothing that gives me greater joy than to see some of these wicked people that committed a hate crime on us in Montana forget about us and just humble themselves before God and repent and be made right. If they do that, there'd be no reason for us to have a civil lawsuit. I mean, I'd even, I'd even suck up the money I've had to spend so far if they come to Christ. When people come to Christ, your worst enemy can become your closest brother. That's a blessed thing. I praise God for that. But if they won't repent, we can desire God's justice. The martyrs in heaven do. Luke 18, we hear this uh, parable all the time about the unjust judge and the widow that went and bugged him over and over again. And finally, he did what was right, not because he cared about God or truth, but so she would stop bugging him. I mean, if we're Bible believers and we want to apply the principles that Jesus teaches, then there's a reason to keep phoning these offices over and over and over and over and over and over, over again. Do right by the missionaries in Montana. Do right by the missionaries in Montana over and over and over and bug the mess out of them. Even if they're unjust. Even an unjust judge from time to time just gets sick of it and finally does what the old widow wanted him to do. But a lot of times we overlook what she was asking for. Luke chapter 18, verse 3, and there was a widow in that community or in that city, or there was a judge in, uh, in the city, verse 2, which feared not God, neither regarded man. He was an unjust judge. 
And there was a widow in that city. She came unto him saying, Avenge me of my adversary. She wanted vengeance. Now Jesus doesn't give us any detail. We know she's a widow. Probably means that her husband was murdered. And she wanted vengeance. And she appealed to an unjust judge. She didn't give up because the judge was unjust. She kept bugging him and he finally gave her what she asked. And then Jesus turns around and says... Listen, what the unjust judge teaches us here, or teaches you. Shall not God avenge His own elect? If an unjust judge will do it to shut up somebody that's bugging Him, how much more so will a righteous God avenge His own elect? When they attack the saints, they attack God's elect, which cried day and night unto Him, though He bear long with them. Can we not cry day and night unto God for vengeance? For, for, for justice and judgment to be done on the, those that hate God. Jesus said, pray for our enemies. We should pray that God would save them. But we can also pray for them that God would judge them. But what about the enemies of God? David said he hated the enemies of God with perfect hatred. My enemies that Jesus is talking about is my neighbor, or people close to me, and we're enemies because of stuff, stupid stuff that, that we refuse to resolve and personal uh, uh, prejudices and things like that. But what about God's enemies? Those that attack Christians, those that kill Christians, they're enemies of God. And we should cry out to Him. John, in this last little <coughs> prayer, even so, indicates that an element of that is, Lord, come and destroy your enemies. Even so has an element of God, take vengeance. We should not be afraid to ask the Lord to take vengeance on our enemies. To overthrow evil in our nation. To bring it down. To raise up a Samson to put his hands on the pillars of that U.S. Capitol when all the Democrats and Republicans are in there and push it down. For the earth to swallow up. Washington, D.C., like it did with Cora and the rebels. We can pray those things. And then God, whose ways are higher than ours does what is best when we may not know or think what is best but we can lay these things down at the foot of the Lord because of what Christ has done on the cross we can lay our burdens down we can lay our anger down and we can lay our vexation down maybe I'm reading too much into this little old prayer here at the end even so and then we've got come Lord Jesus Jesus said, surely I come quickly. And what's John's response? Come, Lord Jesus. It's a prayer in response to a promise. How often do God's promises to us in the Scripture elicit prayer? We read them, we think about them, we smile about them. We may find comfort, but do we pray them immediately? Do we pray that Christ will speedily do what He has said? Do we pray God's promises? Do we yearn and long for their fulfillment? I don't, as I should. I don't model John here. I'm weak. I don't even know if I should be up here preaching to you folks. I'm weak. The Bible says when you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Guys, my strength is small. I might have a black belt in Aikido, a black belt in Chamaquan, a black belt in Karakata. I might have all that. 
But we've had days of adversity since November 12th, and I've fainted in those days. My, my strength is small. I admit it. But should it be that way? There are those in the Scripture who were frail physically. Frail. One was a young lady, younger than Bethany. Another was a very old man. They had more strength than I do with all my black belts because they yearned with faith that God would fulfill His long-awaited promises. In fact, both of these individuals are found very close to one another in the Gospel of Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 1. One of the most powerful responses to God's promise can be found from a young lady, a virgin of the house and lineage of David. Her name was Mary. She was descended from King David through his son Nathan. The angel came to Mary and spoke of the very things that John here longs for at the end of Revelation. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be the son of the highest. And this is the part everybody forgets about. And he, the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Christ is going to come back physically and bodily and set up a kingdom and sit on the throne of his father David. Talking about the very things that John has written about here. The angel. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Promises concerning the coming of Christ. His first coming and his second coming wrapped up into one, just like you see in the Old Testament time and time again. And what was Mary's response? It was just like John's. Just like it. Then said Mary unto the angel, she asked, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And then the, 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 uh, the, the angel explains to her that the Holy Ghost is going to come upon her. And that which is going to be born of her is of God and will be called the Son of God. Something amazing, something that never happened before. And then she's told about her cousin Elizabeth, verse 37, for with God nothing shall be impossible. And what's Mary's response to these incredible things that had never been heard of? A young girl. What's her response? It's the same as John's. The same faith. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. Do it, Lord. Fulfill your word. Be it unto me exactly what you've said. What a prayer of faith. Simeon, an old man you can find in the, over in Luke chapter 2. Old man, elderly. More strength in the day of adversity than a guy sitting here preaching with a bunch of black belts. More strength. Old. Waiting for the consolation of Israel in times when, when there was no king, there was no priest, no teraphim. Rome was in control. Caesar ruled. And there was this old man. Luke chapter 2, 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now remember, that word Christ is the Hebrew for Messiah, Mashiach. It means the Messiah. You're not going to die until you see the Messiah with your own eyes. And he came by the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, 
Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. A prayer of faith doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be complex. It can be simple. We see it from a young lady, an elderly man, and we see it from John on the Isle of Patmos, the only disciple that didn't die a martyr's death. Even so, be it according to thy word. That's the essence of what John says here at the end of Revelation. Let it be according to thy word. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Simeon knew about the prophecy in Isaiah that the Messiah would be a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of His people Israel. God said, it's a light thing that I should send my servant to save Israel, but He'll also be a light to the Gentiles. Be it according to thy word. And it has been. There ought to be an element in our prayer life where we long for, covet the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Simeon did. There ought to be an element of that. Paul tells us, I know I'm preaching long on just a few words, but bear with me here. I I don't get to do a whole lot these days, so I enjoy preaching if I get a chance. Paul said at the end of his life, I like this uh, verse, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I've kept the faith. When I earned my first black belt in martial arts back in 94, my parents gifted me a sword, a Japanese uh, katana sword that I have to this day. It hangs on my wall, and they had this verse inscribed on it. It's very precious to me. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, Paul speaking of himself, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, but not to me only. The crown of righteousness wasn't for Paul only. Who else? But unto all them also that love His appearing. John loved His appearing. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Do we? Or do we forget about it? Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us about the type of love for Christ's appearing that Paul is referring to. Philippians 3.20 Paul also writes to the Philippian believers, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That word look there in Greek, Greek. I was told by a good old professor in college, don't ever pronounce Greek from the pulpit. People will never remember it, and you may not even be pronouncing it right, and most of the time people just do that to look smart. But I'm going to do that because I want to make a point. The word look for here is apodekomai in Greek. It has a, um, a prefix, apo, which means separation. So in other words, look for, by the addition of that prefix, makes it a very strong verb. It means watching or waiting at the expense of other things. In other words, you're looking so much for the coming of Christ that other things are blurry. And you may even neglect other things. What's in the news headlines? What that old dementia patient in Washington is saying? You don't even know. I don't even know what some docs are on the internet saying about me. I, I don't even know because I'm looking for the coming of Christ. 
That's the looking for. Even so, come Lord Jesus involves watching, waiting, looking for. Other things ought to be blurry. Then we go over to Titus 2.13. Paul's just defining here those that love Christ appearing. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The grace of God has appeared to all men in some form. It teaches us to deny worldliness and worldly lust. It encourages us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Verse 13, looking for that blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This verse is pregnant. It's powerful. It equates the blessed hope of the believer with the coming of Christ and it equates Jesus Christ the Savior as being the great God. In the original language here, Jesus is called the great God. He is God. And the blessed hope is His coming for His church. Looking here, looking for, is not apodecomai, as we saw in Philippians 3.20. It's prosdecomai. It's the same verb, but it's got a different prefix. Pros means towards, towards something. So the element that's emphasized here with looking for the blessed hope is expecting. Expecting. You know it's true. You're expecting it to be fulfilled. You're not doubting it. The blessed hope is the rapture of the church. It's not the Antichrist. It's not the kingdom of the beast. It's not the last days. It's not our death. It's the coming of Christ for His church. It's the come Lord Jesus of Paul's prayer. Or I mean, I'm sorry, John's prayer. It involves waiting and watching. Apedecomai, and it involves expecting. It's not a hope so waiting. It's a no so expecting. John's prayer, the essence of the Lord Bible's last prayer, is the very blessed hope that we're taught, spoken of, that's spoken about here in Titus two thirteen. That's the essence of it. I like that word blessed hope on Facebook. My, I don't know what you call it. My motto, whatever the motto is. How you describe yourself. I like to say it this way. I'm just a herald. Nobody important. I'm a nobody. I'm a herald of the book, the blood, and the blessed hope. Amen. Amen. The very last prayer of the Bible looks forward, not behind. It doesn't look inward. It looks toward. Prostecomai, it looks forward. How often do we even mention the coming of Jesus Christ in our prayers? How often do we mention it in our preaching, in our exhortation, in our fellowship one with another? How often do you hear it talked about in the churches? It seems like the closer we get to that day, the less it's talked about. Just like the days of Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached for 120 years. And the closer it got to the flood, the less people talked about it or even wanted to hear about it. It's a way of things. I can't close the book on the Bible's last prayer unless we look at its first prayer. You remember we talked about a 
sound principle of biblical interpretation. The fancy word there is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the uh, proper interpretation of the Scriptures. Now, we need to remember that man doesn't interpret the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit does. The Holy Ghost is the interpreter. When the plain sense is common sense, I don't need to interpret it. The Holy Spirit's done it. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That doesn't need an interpretation. Come Lord Jesus. But we talked about the law of the first mention. There's a sound hermeneutic principle when you study the Scriptures. The first time a word or an event or a concept is mentioned in the Scriptures, we should take heed because that first mention is going to set the tone. It's going to set the pace for subsequent appearances of either a word, a concept, or an event throughout Scripture. So we should interpret things in the Bible in the entire context of Scripture. Scripture is the chief interpreter of Scripture. And we looked at examples of that like love. The very first mention of the word love in the Bible is in the context of Abraham offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. What that teaches us is that biblical love has an element of sacrifice. And we see that manifested in Jesus Christ. We see that manifested in the ministry of the apostles. And yet American love has no element of sacrifice. It's self-serving. But the law of the first mention, to fully appreciate the Bible's last prayer from the mouth of John, at the very close of the New Testament canon, I think we should briefly look at the Bible's first recorded prayer. Does anybody know where that is? Where is the Bible's first recorded prayer? We're not, it's not recorded for us the words of that prayer. The prayer is recorded. The record of it. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. And I think it sheds a little light here. Just like the Bible's first promise in Genesis 3.15 sheds light on the Bible's last promise. The first half of this verse we're looking at in Revelation. Genesis 4.25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again and she bare a son and called his name Seth. Seth in Hebrew means compensation or a substitute. Compensation in light of her son Abel no longer being alive. For God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and they call, he called his name Enos. Enos means mortal man. Somebody like me. A mortal man. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Here we have the Bible's first record of prayer. Men calling upon the name of the Lord. The Lord no longer walked with man as He did with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden. Cain had murdered his brother. Cain and his descendants had gone off to found man-made religion and to found modern civilization. They built cities. They obsessed themselves with the things of this world, not the things of the spiritual. Cain himself is the father of all man-made religion. Man-made religion says, I'll come to God on my own terms. That's what Cain did. All man-made religion goes back to Cain. But there was a godly line that came through Seth and eventually gave us Noah. 
and eventually gave us Abraham all the way down to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And when Seth gave birth to his son Enos, another mortal man destined to die, godly men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The context here of this prayer is Cain, the father of all man-made religion, the line of Cain, the first men to build cities, the first builders of modern civilization and triflers with musical instruments and metals and weapons. Men, in contrast to the line of Cain, didn't look to themselves for help. There were men that instead called upon the Lord for help. What were they calling for? Well, as we say in Spanish, que obvio, it's obvious. They were calling upon God to do what He promised Adam and Eve He would do. Send the seed of the woman. Seth gave birth to a son that was mortal like him. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. They thought God was going to do it immediately and He didn't. Fulfill your promise, Lord. Isn't that exactly the essence of the Bible's last prayer? Prayer is calling upon God. It's not addressing Him. It's not acknowledging Him per se. It's not mantras. Remember what Jesus said there in Matthew 6? Don't be like the heathen when you pray. All of the vain repetitions. If you go to live in India or Nepal like we have and you get around Buddhists and Hindus, or even in Israel with the Orthodox Jews, you'll know exactly what Jesus was talking about. Vain repetitions. They think they're heard for their much speaking. That's mantras. That's addressing. That's acknowledging. But biblical prayer is to call upon God. And that's what John does here. He calls upon the Lord. He calls upon Jesus to do exactly what He said He's going to do. Calling upon God. When we pray, let's call upon God like the first men that feared God did in Genesis chapter 4. Let's call upon Him. Let's call upon Jesus. Let's call upon the name of the Messiah. My friends, we don't need another president in this country. We don't need Trump 2024. We don't need MAGA. QAnon, whatever that stuff is. I don't even know what that is. We don't need that. We don't need another president. We don't need another Congress. We don't need another economic recovery. We don't need to get out of another. We don't need any of that stuff. We've had enough of that stuff. We need the Messiah. We need the Messiah to come. Even so, come Lord Jesus. He's the only one that can fix this mess. We need Him. Call upon Him. Paul the Apostle takes John's last prayer, even so come Lord Jesus, five words. But Paul, in one place in the Bible, takes those five words and sums it up into one. There's a one-word prayer that expresses the five words of John here. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's the only time this appears in the New Testament. And it's interesting how it's associated with God's judgment on false teachers. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Anathema means cursed. 
Paul wasn't afraid to say it like it is. Paul had some choice words for false teachers. Let him be anathema. And then we have a single word to close out that verse. Maranatha. Maranatha is an Aramaic statement or a word that was used amongst early Christians. And this is what it translates. Our Lord come. Even so come Lord. So there's a one word way to say exactly what John says there in the Bible's last prayer. Maranatha. Maranatha. Christians used to say that to one another in the early church when they were persecuted. Maranatha. It meant our Lord is coming. Come Lord and redeem us. The early Christians greeted each other with this. And we don't even talk about the coming of our Lord. Maybe we need to resurrect this old one word prayer and use it a little bit more. Maranatha. A one word summary of the Bible's last prayer in Revelation 22 verse 20. We should make it a very regular part of our discourse. A regular part of our prayers. I'm going to end with this. Uh, Surely I come... Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The Bible's last prayer. There's an image that is spoken of. One of the best classes I ever took in college or seminary was called Daniel and Revelation. Daniel and Revelation go together. Daniel's audience, primary target audience is the Jew. Revelation's primary target audience is the church. And much of the the same things that Daniel sees, John sees. It's the same. But I had an old professor who was educated at Dallas Baptist Theological Seminary, Paul Fink. He was an elderly man. He was a hard professor, but he was one of the old school Bible teachers that actually believed the Bible. And taught the Bible. It was one of the best classes I ever had. Daniel and Revelation. And we had to use these commentaries by John Walver. John Walver was a, was a, was a teacher at Dallas Baptist Theological Seminary. And I loved the commentary on Revelation by John Walver. Walver's dead now. And his commentary on Daniel. And so these were great reads. And I still have them today. But at the very end of the book, where he talks about verses 18 through 20 of chapter 22, he quotes a commentator from 1957, Joseph Seiss. And it refers to these five words here in Revelation. And I just thought the information was powerful. I pulled this book off my shelf and it brought back a lot of good memories of that class. One of my favorite classes I ever took in college and seminary. Uh, Dr. Fink went to be with the Lord some years ago. Liberty don't have professors like that anymore. They were on their way out by age when I was there, and it's been replaced by all this modern garbage. Anyway, fiction, this is from a 1957 commentary on Revelation, referring to chapter 22, verse 20. Fiction has painted the picture of a maiden whose lover left her for a voyage to the Holy Land, promising on his return to make her his beloved bride. Many told her that she would never see him again, but she believed his word. And evening by evening, she went down to the lonely shore and kindled there a beacon light inside of the roaring waves to hail and welcome the returning ship, which was to bring again her betrothed. And by that watchfire, she took her stand each night, praying to the winds to hasten on the sluggish sails. 
that he who was everything to her might come. Even so, that blessed Lord, who has loved us unto death, has gone away to the mysterious holy land of heaven, promising on his return to make us his happy and eternal bride. Some say that he is gone forever, and that here we shall never see him more. But his last word was, Yea, or surely I come quickly. And on the dark and misty beach, sloping out into the eternal sea, each true believer stands by the love-lit fire, looking and waiting and praying and hoping for the fulfillment of His work. And nothing gladder than in His pledge and promise and calling ever from the soul of sacred love. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And some of these nights, while the world is busy with its gay frivolities, And laughing at the maiden on the shore, a form shall rise over the surging waves as once on Galilee to vindicate forever all this watching and all this devotion and bring to the faithful and constant heart a joy and glory and triumph which nevermore shall end. As we think about this last prayer of the Scriptures. Imagine that vision standing on the shore nightly by the fire. The maiden watching the sea, ever longing, ever waiting. One of these days, just like Jesus on the Galilee when His disciples were toiling in that storm, they saw the figure coming and all was at peace. One of these days, it will be. And all of the trials and tribulations, even things that we're in the middle of, will suddenly mean nothing. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. we got one verse left. One verse. The Bible's last blessing and the Bible's last amen. We're almost done. Praise God. It's been a long journey. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for its opening history a history of our origins, and we're thankful for its closing testimony. Lord, its closing promise, its closing prayer. Lord, we're thankful that You have not forgotten any of Your promises. And in that vein, in that spirit, we say, like John, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Jesus, come and liberate us from this present evil world. Come and put down evil. Come and reign upon the throne of your father, David. Come for your saints like you promised them there in John 14. Judge evil. Put it down. Trample it in the dust. That we might have righteousness and peace. True peace. Thank You for dying on the cross in our place. Thank You for raising up from the dead. Thank You for giving us Your Holy Spirit and giving us a commission. And thank You for keeping Your promise all these years to build Your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And thank You for Your promise to return. Help us to be faithful like the maiden on the shore, attending to the watchfire, looking, waiting, and hoping. And now, Lord, fulfill Your promise. May it even be today. Thank you for the fellowship and the comfort we can find in your word. And I ask, Lord God, that you would bless the food that's been prepared. 
Thank you for the hands that prepare it. May we find grace and comfort in the eating of a food and the fellowship of one with another around the table. And Lord, may Maranatha, a desire for your coming, be a regular part of our discourse. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.